Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by James Hardy Siding, the best siding on the planet. Doug in Pittsburgh. How are you today? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Quick question. I have a home... uh, Half of it's 40 years old, and we added on 25 years ago. So we have mismatched brick that doesn't match perfectly, but wondering about painting the brick. Is that something uh, that we need to primer first, or we just use regular latex? Or No, you definitely have to use a primer first, and you're going to use a masonry-type primer. They, they make special primers for doing brick painting like this. And you'll put that on first. Then you can use a regular household paint over that. But uh, anytime you're doing brick or or concrete, anything like that, it's critical that you use really good paints because moisture is a kiss of death on on, uh, those paints. And that's the reason it's really important to get high-end stuff. Don't go cheap on the paints. That was my concern, too. I, I wasn't real sure. So I've seen some brick paint before that's nothing but peeling, you know, in five years or so. It looks horrible. So. And normally that is people who didn't prime it, didn't do any of the prep work, and used the cheap paint. You know, if you go through the right steps, it holds up for years. But you you got to go through the right steps to protect it. Okay, maybe I'll take a look into that. I do appreciate your time, sir. I enjoy the show. Thank you, Doug. You take care. Again, our number, 1-800-288-9227. That's 1-800-288-9227. You're seeing more and more houses where the brick is being painted. Uh, And like I said, it's nothing wrong with it. You just have to make sure that you prime it to seal it and... Uh, so that moisture doesn't get in, because when you get moisture into the brick and it starts pushing out, that's where you see houses start to blister and stuff. And if you try to put the paint without putting the the proper prime primer and sealer on, if you just try to go and put paint straight on the brick, it'll last for a couple years, but that will start peeling because it doesn't bond properly to the to the brick. And it does make a difference on your bricks because you know. Uh, the reason a lot of people are painting their houses is they've got that cheap Mexican brick, and I've got it on my house. It was built in 73, and, uh, you know, that's even more critical to make sure that you got the proper primers and sealers and all that kind of stuff. I got the bad news that I have to replace my entire four-ton AC gas heater at my home. It's one of three units. I've been working with this contractor for 10 years on other jobs. So I assume that my pricing is reasonable, but I wouldn't mind your opinion. My bigger question is, what sear would you put in your house? We are empty nesters, and we plan on downsizing from our 5,000 plus square foot house in the next five years. And so he's got a 14 sear, 15 sear, 16, 17, 18. And these prices are for a ream system, I try to listen Saturday and Sunday in Fort Worth. Thanks, Richard. And the different prices from a 14 sear at 6,000 to a 15 sear at 7,000. I'm sorry, 15 sear. 
those are both single stage, uh, just on or off. When he got into the 16 sear, he started getting pricing on two stage systems, which means the the speed the fan speed has a couple speeds on it, so it can stay running longer, which helps with dehumidification, also helps keep the system quieter. And he ran that all the way up to 18 sear systems. Normally, right now, I'm telling people buy something between 16 and 18 sear. 14 is the bottom that you can buy. And in this particular case, to go from a 14-seer single-stage to a 16-seer two-stage, there's a $2,650 difference. Quite frankly, for that price difference, go with the 16-seer. You're going to be selling the house in five years, I understand that. But between now and then, you're going to have some great savings on your energy consumption. Uh, because anytime you get into a system that's multi-stage, they figure on it on the highest use that that system will do. So anytime this system is operating on that lower stage, you're saving a ton of money. On top of that, when you go to sell the house, you can say you don't have the smallest system available. You have this two-stage 16-seer. It just looks more impressive. So if it was me for that cost difference, I'd be going with that 16-seer. Uh, there was quite a bit of difference to jump up into the 18-seer. And quite frankly, I don't think you'd save enough energy on these bids in order to justify that added cost. So to answer your question, that's the one I would go with, 16-seer, two-stage. I really do like the variable speed systems uh, whether it's a two-stage or now the ones that they have that just ramp up and down all the way no no limits basically uh, those are the ones I truly like you don't even hear those systems running hardly quick email question that came in from Mike and Alan what is your recommendation for putting a radiant barrier on a roof that is being replaced does it go under the felt or between the felt and the shingles what is the estimated average payback time frame, two years or 20 years? Well, first of all, I only put a radiant barrier on the roof if it's a cathedral ceiling or something like that where I don't have attic space. If you have an attic, put your radiant barrier in the attic. I want the radiant barrier, because I use a multi-layer system, as close to the living space as possible, because... I'm heating and cooling that space. I'm not really all that interested in the temperature in my attic. So for most cases, I lay my radiant barrier on the attic floor. But again, it's a multi-layer system with a thermal break in the middle. If I'm putting it on the roof on a cathedral ceiling or something like that, uh, I typically don't even use a felt. I'll put this down uh, as my felt. Now, you can put it over felt or under felt. It really doesn't matter. But the key thing is you got to make sure it's a multi-layer system with that thermal break in order for it to work for you properly. Uh, if you want to talk to somebody who has this radiant barrier, give uh, Mark Delgado a call, 1-800-900-6220. That's 800-900-6220. And his company name is Energy Q Radiant Barrier. When we left, I was talking with Tom. And Tom, are you there still? 
Yeah, I'm here. Alrighty. So you you you've got a, a shed, and you're getting a musty odor coming up from underneath. Yeah, from and and I think it's coming from the floor because it looked like the doors blew in at some point and it got wet. So you can tell kind of maybe one sheet of the flooring has turned kind of a dark black color. Uh huh. Um, but it's also had been crawling with geckos and lizards and stuff for a number of years before I went in and cleaned it up. So I'm uh, just wondering if, if, uh, if there's something I can do maybe to treat that flooring or it just needs to be replaced or is it a health hazard and I should just set it on fire? <laughs> well, I, I, I won't <laughs> tell you to set it on fire, but uh, I'm assuming this is a crawl space underneath it? Yes, there is. Yeah, and it's pretty close to the ground right now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, probably. Well, there's a couple of uh, sort of four by sixes running under it, beams. Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's probably six inches, eight inches. Yeah, I think what you're getting is just the musty smell of the soil coming up from underneath the house. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, pro- replacing boards and stuff isn't going to change that. Okay, one other interesting thing here is whoever owned it previously drilled a bunch of one-inch holes in the floor uh, along that area, which I've not seen before. So there's direct communication with the air beneath the structure and in the room. That's making the odor even worse then. Because typically on a block and base pier and beam type home, uh, or sheds or anything else, you know, the moist the soil underneath stays moist because it's not exposed to the elements. The mm-hmm. sun's not drying it out ever, things like that. And so that moisture in the soil comes up, and through a single layer of plywood and stuff, it'll it'll come up through the gaps and things. But you got holes drilled in it. Oh, it, it's going to be much worse. <laughs> All right, you think just laying some sort of Outdoor carpeting over the top of that would uh, probably help some. Uh, only while it's new, and then about six months from now, that carpet's going to smell even worse. Mm. Okay, so it feels uh, like. Are, is, are you using floor. this as a storage shed, or are you using it as as a a room? Uh, a storage shed. Okay, if it was me, I'd probably look at putting a second layer of wood, plywood, over the top of the first layer. Mm-hmm. That'll close up those holes and make it uh, tighter around joints and stuff, so that makes it more difficult for the odor to come up through. Okay, and I could just use like a three-eighths inch thickness plywood yep. for that then, right? Exactly. Okay, that sounds like an easy solution, Jim. Thank you. Yep. You have a great afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. This comes from Chris in Houston. The sidewalk in front of my house has settled and created multiple three to four inch drops across the section across my property. And the neighborhood built in the mid-70s has many areas that are the same or worse. Some sections nearly drop 12 inches. The property line for the homeowners in the neighborhood ends several feet before the sidewalk. Is the city responsible for fixing these issues or should the HOA pay for it? How do people typically address getting this type of problem fixed? Well, unless you're a a condominium, townhome, something like that, it's a city issue more so than it's going to be your HOA. HOA normally is not responsible for easements and sidewalks and things like that. However, in many cities, 
they're going to tell you you need to fix the sidewalk. So it's really just going to depend on the city limits and who you get a hold of uh, as far as getting that fixed. Urethane injection may be the way for you to take a look at doing it as that's probably going to be a heck of a lot cheaper than replacing all that concrete. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. This comes from Marshall in Crosby. I have the old-style septic. I have a, two 500-gallon tanks. I was thinking of using enzymes to help maintain it. What are your thoughts? How much to use? What brand? How often? Thanks in advance. Well, you do, anytime you have septic tanks, you need to be putting enzymes in because some of the chemicals we use to wash dishes, clothes, and things like that will tend to kill off some of the enzymes. So you're forever needing to and add enzymes. And the enzymes are critical because that's what eats up the waste that goes in, the toilet papers and other things that tend to plug up the leach field lines. So it's critical to keep the enzyme levels high to keep things flowing the way they're supposed to. So yes, absolutely be putting stuff in. As far as brand, there's a lot of different brands out there. And you're going to have to read on whichever brand you buy how much to add for your tanks. Uh, Ridex is probably the, the main staple of enzymes to be added to septic tanks. And uh, typically with them, you just dump the whole box in and let it go with that. And you do it once a month in order to keep the levels up. John, this is Jim. How can I help you? Jim, I had a couple questions on insulation. One, we had some done, and it was for insect protection and all that uh, with Terminex. And we did notice a bit of improvement in our, our utility bills, you know, heating and air conditioning. And then there's another thing that I just heard about, actually went to a seminar on, and I was wondering if you're familiar with it at all. It was called Energy Improvements, and they're at, I guess, energyimprovements.net, and it's uh, using material from NASA uh, that insulates heat as well as coolness uh, that you put radiant in Radiant barrier? Yeah, exactly, like a radiant barrier. And I was yeah. wondering what your thoughts and experience were with that. It you know, looks pretty good, but... You know, I wanted to talk to the expert. Yeah, I love radiant barriers. They actually do a great job of insulating the home and, and uh, protecting it from the temperature. And basically what a radiant barrier does is it stops the heat transfer. And, uh -huh. the be you know, the best place where you see it, you know, talking about NASA, if you go back to the old Apollo missions, you saw that gold foil around the capsules. That was yes, a radiant barrier. Got it. So you think it'll definitely work pretty good on cutting some expense and some heat and, and care, air conditioning expense. Oh, yeah. And, and there's, understand there's a lot of different types of radiant barriers. I mean, there's single ply uh, that have to have airspace on them. They can't be touching any uh, or they don't work properly. There's a multi-layer system that has a thermal break in the middle. That can actually be sandwiched in between materials. There is spray-on barriers uh, that are not actually radiant barriers, but they work similarly, and 
block some of the heat transfer, but not near as much as a regular foil-type barrier does. You know, the mm-hmm. whole thing that you have to do is just look at the application that you're going to use and then get the right barrier for it. Yeah, and then one thing, too, that it had were perforated holes in it, I yep. guess. And also they used, I think it was uh, balances or some kind of uh, baffles. Baffles, I think it is. Um, something to do with the airspace or keep it from moisture not collecting. Does that make okay. sense? They're, yeah, they're they're putting it then on the on the roof rafters, right? Yes. And they're using the baffles then to keep air flow up above the radiant barrier. And that, that and good? that's fine. That helps to to control temperatures in the attic. Uh okay. I personally like to use the multi-layer system and lay it on the attic floor because it it uh keeps the heat from getting into my insulation which That's keeps what my they did, living kind space of over cooler. the installation they did that i think the only other thing on those others might have been does it make sense in the corner areas or something maybe well it, usually the baffles are used to keep airflow when more insulation is added okay okay so but yes it it uh, radiant barriers are a great thing now you you do have to watch because some companies will try to repackage these things and and make it an all to do and and eliminate all your issues and all this kind of stuff and charge outrageous prices for them yeah uh radiant barriers truly are not that expensive okay what kind of cost is it on say a a three thousand uh square foot home in the attic approximately you think to have somebody do it yes sir and is that a one-story 3,000 or two-story? Two-story. Okay, so you're really only talking 1,500 square feet of attic then. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, so you're probably going to be something in the range of to have it installed. I'm just throwing ballpark numbers now. Some are yeah. 2000 to $3,000. Okay, okay. Yeah, that sounds that sounds that sounds because we have a large atrium. I think it would work good in an atrium area. Am I right on that? That would be helpful. Oh yeah, it, it works any place you want to stop the heat transfer. And you know, the other thing on radiant barriers, if you got a, a house, you know, most people try to keep their homes at seventy-two, seventy-three degrees. The lower you want to keep your thermostat, the better the mm-hmm. radiant barrier works. In other words. If you're somebody who likes the thermostat at 78, you're not going to get as big a return on your investment because you're not using as much energy to begin with. The colder yeah. you try to keep it, uh, the better it's going to work. And a house that likes it at 72, 73, the average payback is about two years. Wow. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Because I was even figuring if it was five years or something, it would be four or five years, it'd be worth it, you know. Because, you know, the cost of energy keeps going up every year, too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it, Jim, very much. No problem. You have a great afternoon. You, too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, again, if you have a home improvement question, feel free to pick up the phone. Give me a call, 713-212-5874 or 866-937-0003. And, you know, those multi-layer radiant barriers, just before we get off that subject, 
uh, they can be used more than just in attics. If you have cathedral ceilings, and you don't, you know, you don't have attic space up there to make it more energy efficient, the next time you shingle, those multi-layer radiant barriers can be put underneath the shingles and keep that radiant heat from coming into the cathedral ceilings. You can use radiant barriers, the multi-layer systems, behind the sheetrock on exterior walls of a house. So if you're building a new home, you can either put the radiant barrier behind the sheetrock or on the outside if you're using like James Hardy siding or something like that in order to keep the heat from coming into the walls and stuff. And it really does a great job of making a house a lot more energy efficient. We got a little house at the Deer Lease that we did the, the attic and the walls and everything. That thing doesn't hardly use any electricity at all. They really do make a huge difference. So if you're building new or retrofitting, doesn't matter. The radiant barriers are definitely something that should be included in your home. Listening to your show on 740, our house has economy-grade locks on outside doors, about 18 years old and showing some wear. What do you think of the electronic locks, keypad, or a coded tab you have at the door? We travel abroad some, and high-grade hotels have these. You pretty much talked a guy out of no-touch water faucets yesterday, and I did. Uh, I actually have some of these uh, keypads. In fact, the broadcast trailer I use when I travel around has it. Haven't had any issues with it, with the exception. you got to make sure to keep the battery replaced, because if the battery runs down, it don't work. So other than that, the lock's been pretty good. I've had it, I've been using that uh, Schlag electronic lock now for about uh, eight years. And I actually reprogrammed a new code into it uh, Friday. So it's still still working great, still, still does everything I need it to do. Um, they're a little pricey. But other than that, hey, they're they're great. You don't have to carry keys with you and stuff like that. You know, a lot it's it's really no different than a lot of people have electronic pads for their overhead garage doors. You know, the biggest difference though is on the overhead garage door, you got thieves who run around hitting buttons to see if they can get garage doors to go up. I don't know if there's anything like that on these electronic locks or not. Um I would have to guess there probably is, but I don't know that for a fact. So would I put them on my house? I have. Uh, when I used to have a condo, I had the electronic lock on it. Loved it. It really worked well because I didn't have to worry about carrying keys with me all the time. Uh, and the, I had the condo for when I traveled, so it, it was a good thing. Donald, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Uh, yes. Is this Jim Dutton? It is. All right. Very good. I was uh, calling you up and asked to ask an old house, older house, uh -huh. and I have window units that are built into the wall right now, and I'm thinking about putting in central air or this new uh, ductless air conditioning system, and what do you think about it? I love ductless. Uh, in fact, okay. in, my, in my own house, yeah. I have both on... Uh, a, an old-style duct-type system and ductless systems. Right. I, I was just thinking, of what is the reliability of those? I've heard that they're 
uh, very expensive to maintain. Is that true? No, not at all. In fact, uh, typically they're cheaper to maintain than a regular air conditioner, and the life ex expectancy of them is longer than a regular duct-type air conditioner. The upfront cost, you know, this is the cost that a lot of people fail to look at. The upfront cost actually is a little bit more on a ductless type system or mini split, uh, whichever terminology yeah. you want to use. But uh, once it's installed, they're actually much more energy efficient than a regular duct type system. The maintenance is, is minimal uh, and the durability is just excellent. Uh, are these uh, units, you know, this is a small house. It's 1,800 square feet, and it has three bedrooms, uh, a living room, dining room, and kitchen. Okay. And uh, it would lend itself really well to a regular type air conditioner, but I was just wondering about these units. I've read about them. Uh, they mount on the wall, and there's only lines that go from the air. Well, go, yeah. Yeah, they, they, there's actually multiple different ways they can go in. They have units that mount on the wall, and they yeah. have unit, a cassette unit that sits up into the ceiling. Uh, and oh. I have one of each of those in my house. Okay. Uh, and the, the one that sits up into the ceiling, if you've ever been into an RV, it kind of yeah. has a, a, a look like that. I um, see. So it's not what near as intrusive as the wall mount unit is. But yeah. you got to have access in the attic to run the yeah, pipes to I, it. I will. There, that that's that's good. Uh, and it, how do you how do you size this thing? Uh, that's that's what I'm kind of concerned with because they, you know, what I've been reading about, they say it uh, might freeze up on you if you put it into a room that's too small. Yeah, but that's no different than than a regular duct type system. If you over you know, if you size the, the things wrong, they're going to freeze yeah. up. Uh, they size these the same as you would any other air conditioner. You get They go through and do a load calculation room by room in order to okay. get the right sizes for them. I see. Uh, do you have a recommendation uh, on uh, either installers or, let's say, brand name? Uh, where are you at? Uh, <laughs> Long way out in the country. I'm located in Moulton, Texas. It's about halfway between San Antonio and Houston. Uh, uh, truthfully, I don't have anybody out there that I can recommend. Um, yeah. I, I will tell you the, the system I have in my own house is from Carrier. Okay. And uh, it does great. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. Well, I tell you, you've answered my questions uh, very well today. Uh I think that's about all I have. Okay. I'll think of about a million things when we hang up, though. Well, I will tell you, one of the biggest advantages of going with a ductless system, especially when you're doing multiple rooms that way, Right. and this is something to keep in mind, one, the efficiency. Uh, you know, you can put in a 16-seer or an 18-seer air conditioner, but truly, once you get up to that size... You're in com competition cost-wise to the ductless system that's going to come in at between 30 and 40 sear. Extremely energy efficient. But on top of that, you have a thermostat for every single room that way. And with that thermostat, you know, you're, you're able to keep, say, part of the house 
at, uh, we'll, we'll say 78 degrees, but you want it down at uh, 68 where you're sleeping, not a problem. Yeah. See, that's what I have. I have three separate air conditioners yep. to accommodate. Yeah, and so this this is going to match closer yeah. to what you're used to having than if you go with a duct-type system. And with that, i got to let you go because we're up against news, traffic, and weather. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.